Part three, chapter two of *The Thread of Flame* by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part three, chapter two. Noble intentions being easier to conceive than to carry out, it is hardly surprising that on settling again in New York, I found myself let down. The sense of adventure was out of it, while that of the mission had crept in. The old friends were still the old friends, but if my intercourse with them was not less spontaneous, it was certainly more self-conscious. Back in my squint-eyed room, with the new paper and the more showy set of fungi, the knowledge that I was there because I chose to be there, and not because I couldn't help it, marked all my goings and comings with a point of interrogation. In some measure, too, it was a point of disapproval. That is to say, those who welcomed me back took me somewhat in the spirit of a returned empty. "'Why, yes, of course, if you want it,' was Miss Smith's reply to my request to have my old room back again, but her intonation was not wholly that of pleasure. "'We thought, my sister and I, that your social duties in Boston would restrict your movements for the future.' I had pricked their little bubble of romance, and they were disappointed. That one who had been their lodger was now with the Olympian gods was a tale to be told as long as they had a room to let, and to everyone who rented one. I saw at once that I couldn't ask them to believe that I had come back of my own free will. The very magnitude of my hopes compelled me to be silent with regard to them. "'Punk!' was Peddy's comment, when I braced myself to tell him I'd find home life disillusioning. That was across the table of the familiar eating-house, as we took our first meal together. I was obliged to explain myself for the reason that in the back of his mind also I read the conviction that I hadn't made good. Compelled to be more primitive than I should have liked, I had to base my dissatisfaction on the grounds of physical restriction rather than on those of divine discontent. "'Some of them Boston women will put the lid on a man and lock it down,' he observed further. "'Punk, I call it. Well, now that you've broken loose, and with your wad, I suppose you'd be giving yourself a little run.' I allowed him to make this assumption, thankful that he should understand me from any point of view, but it was not the point of view of our former connection. That a man should be down on his luck was one thing, but that, having got on his feet, he should deliberately become a waster was another. In any light but that of a reversion to low tastes, I could never have made Sam see my return to the house in Meeting House Green. For low tastes he had the same toleration as for misdemeanours, but he did not disguise the fact that for a man who had got his chance he considered them low tastes. At Creed and Creed's I received a similar tempered welcome. "'Sure, here's Brogan,' Bridget called out to the other men, on seeing me enter the cavern, where four of them were at the accustomed work of sweeping a consignment that had just been unpacked. Burlap and sheepskins were still strewn about the floor, so that I had to restrain the impulse to pick things up and stack them. Perhaps I can best compare my return— to that of a spirit which has passed to a higher sphere, and chooses to be for a short time re-embodied. Dennis, the Finn, and a small wary man, a stranger to me, all drew near to stare solemnly. My visit could only be taken as a condescension, not as a renewed incorporation into the old life. From that I had been projected forever, by the sheer fact of not having to earn a living in this humble way. "'Oh, but it's well you're looking,' Gadavan said awesomely. "'And why shouldn't he be looking well?' Bridget demanded. "'And him with more butter than he's got bread to spread it on.' "'It's different with us,' the Finn said bitterly. 
with no butter and not enough bread and more mouths to feed than can ever be filled. I bet you Brogan doesn't think of them, now that he's got his own belly full. It seemed to me an opening. Well, suppose I did. Suppose I'd come back to hand down some of the butter. Oh, cut it out, Brogan, the Finn laughed joylessly. I was only kidding you. We don't pass the buck, none of us don't. What you got, keep, and if you don't, then the more fool you. In Dennis's yearning eyes were the only signs of remote comprehension in the company. Sure you don't have to pass the buck just because he asked the saints to pray for you, do ye? Pray for us, Brogan. You've got nothing else to do. There was another opening. I wish I had, Dennis. I find that I don't know how to loaf. If you hear of anything... He nodded with beatified aspiration in his leathery old face. Oh, then, if that's the way you feel, the Holy Mother'll find you something. Protestant though you are, you're just as sure as she'd showed old Biddy Murphy, and her a Protestant too, that me mother knew in Ireland where there was two and sixpence lying in the mud, and she with the rent coming due the next morning. This is the new Brogan, he continued, with a wave of his hand toward the dark, wiry man who responded with a grin. He can't talk our talk hardly not at all, not no more than the monkey I used to tell you about. A pole, he calls himself, but I never heard of him no such nation as that till I come to this country. We never had them in Ireland at all, at all. There was Ulster men and Munster men and men from the county Monaghan, but I never heard of tell of no poles. Do you think they'd have souls like us, or would they be like them Chinese or Japanesey men? For God's sake, here's the floater, Bridget warned softly, and every man got back to his work. Back at their work they had no time for further conversation, and in some way, impossible for me to tell you in words, I felt myself eliminated from their fellowship. They would always be friendly, but the knowledge that I was bone of their bone and flesh of their flesh, which had once been the outcome of a common need, was no longer theirs nor mine. I could look in at them in this non-committal way as often as I chose, but I should never get any farther. Something of the sort was manifest when I next met Lydia Blair. Our standing toward each other was different. Little as she had understood me before, she understood me less in this new role than in any other. "'You sure are the queerest guy I ever met,' she said, at one time in the course of an evening. "'I sometimes wonder if you're all there.' But that was after I had been foolish enough to try to make her see my point of view toward life, and failed. Before that she had been sympathetic. Our first conversation had been over the telephone when I called up Clotilde's to ask if Miss Blair had returned from Boston. "'Miss Blair at the phone,' was the reply. "'Who's this?' Somewhat timidly, I said I was Mr. Harraby, repeating the name twice before she recognised it as mine. Having invited her to dine with me and go to the theatre, I got a quavering, "'Sure!' which lacked her usual spontaneity. "'You don't seem pleased,' I said. "'Oh, I'm pleased enough. I'm only wondering if—if if you are.' "'Why shouldn't I be when I've asked you?' "'Well, I put my foot in it for fair, didn't I?' "'You mean in Boston?' "'Well, that was all right. I know you meant to do me a good turn, and perhaps you've done it.' "'Oh, I meant to, but I sure did get a lesson. My mother used to tell me to keep my fingers out of other people's pies, and I'm going to from this time on.' In the evening, seated opposite me at the little table at Josephine's, with the din of a hundred diners giving us a sort of privacy, she told me more about it. "'You see, it was this way. He'd always been talking to me about this rich young Boston widow he'd met at Palm Beach, trying to get my mad up.' "'What did he say of her?' 
"'Well, the sort of thing he would say. "'He's a good judge of woman, you must admit it. "'And he thought she was about the classiest. "'It was when I began to tell him what I wanted to be "'that he sprang that on me, "'said she was the model for me to study, "'and that when it came to the dressy vampire, "'Agnes Dunham wasn't in it.' "'Did he call this, this Boston lady a dressy vampire?' "'Oh, he didn't mean that. "'It was only that for anyone who wanted to be a dressy vampire, "'she was a smart style. "'A vampire mustn't look a vampire, "'or she might as well go out of business. "'The one thing I criticised in Agnes Dunham in The Scarlet Sin "'was that a woman who advertised herself so much as an adventuress "'wouldn't get it very far with her adventuring. "'I see. "'You'd go in for a finer art. "'I'd go in for pulling the thing off, whatever it was. "'But that's not what I wanted to tell you.' To go back to what he was always saying about this Boston lady, it may be crazy to see her. In the corset business I've got intimate with a good many society women, and most of them were gumps. For one good vampire there are a hundred with a kick of a boiled potato. That made me all the crazy to see, and I thought about it and thought about it. Then one day Harry called me on the phone to say, You see, he's living with the Averills, and when that Mrs. Mountney... "'Well, when he told me who you were, and that the lady wasn't a widow any more than I am, "'well, I simply laid down and passed away. "'To think that you, the fellow we've been putting down as a mystery and a swell crook. "'What did you put me down for, then, when you found out?' "'We didn't get a line on it all at once. That was later. "'Mrs. Mountley told Lulu, and Dick Stroud told me, and so... "'Did you all believe what you heard? "'It was pretty hard not to, wasn't it, after the queer things you'd been doing?' There was just one person who stuck it out that it wasn't true, and that was little Milly. She didn't say much to the family, but to me she declared that if all the armies in France were to swear to it, she'd still know there was some mistake. She's another one I can't make out. What can't you make out about her? Whether she's got a heart in her body or only a hard-boiled egg. Oh, I, I fancy she has a heart all right. I used to fancy the same thing, or rather I took it for granted, but ever since— "'Well, she just stumps me.' "'She reverted to her errand in Boston and what came of it. "'It wasn't until I began to hear of what was going on there "'that it seemed to me—' "'The veil of tears to which her eyes were liable "'descended like a distant mist. "'That it seemed to me a darned shame. "'What seemed to you a darned shame in particular? "'Well, first that Dick Stroud should be pulling the wool "'over any other woman's eyes, especially a rich one, "'and then that he should be upsetting your apple-cart "'when you'd had so much trouble already. "'After that it all came easy.' "'What came easy?' "'Getting to know Mrs. Harraby and all the rest of it. "'The first once or twice I didn't see how to bring in Dick Stroud's name "'without seeming to do it on purpose. "'But after I met you in the upstairs hall, "'why, well, it was just natural. "'Say so you copped a peach when you got married, do you know it?' "'Why do you say that?' "'Because I've got eyes in me head.' "'And say, she's the one I saw you with that time I told you about, ever so long ago, and it must have been in New York. I suppose some guy had taken me to a swell restaurant to blow me in for a dinner. But anyhow, she was the one. The minute I saw her back, I knew there were not two such speaking backs in the world. As for me modelling myself on her, well, an old hard last pair of stays might as well try to be Clotilde's number three coal pearl. And say, she's some sport, isn't she? "'When I told her more about Dick Stroud and me, after you'd gone away that afternoon, she never turned a hair. "'Mrs. Mountie says she was going to marry him if you hadn't turned up, and even now he's hoping to marry her. 
but when I let her have the whole bunch of truth, she took it like a rag doll will take a pinprick, never moved a muscle, or showed that it wasn't just my story and not a bit her own. Of course I took my cue from that. It was my line all along. I was just the poor working girl telling her life history to a sympathetic lady, just as they handed out in books. But she carried the thing off something swell. In fact, she made me more than half think— What? I questioned, when she held her idea suspended there. Oh, I don't believe I'll tell you. There are things a man had better find out for himself. Do you know it? I shan't find out anything for myself, I said, because— because I've given up the fight. She stared at me with eyes wide open in incredulous horror. You're giving up the fight for a peach like that? Well, of all the poor boobs! Leaning back in her chair, she scanned my appearance. I thought there was something wrong when I saw you got up like that. You can beat Walter Haynes, the quick-change man, when it comes to clothes, believe me. What have you got on now? I explained that it had been my Sunday suit during the time I had been working at Creed and Creed's. "'Then for God's sake go and take it off before we start for the theatre. I'll wait for you here. You can go and come in a taxi. I've been looking at you all along and thinking it must be the latest wrinkle from Boston. Boston has funny ways now, hasn't it? And so—' It was here that I ventured on the exposition of my new scheme of life, getting no appreciation beyond the question as to my sanity quoted above. Later in the evening, as, after the theatre, I drove her back to Miss Flowerdews in a taxi, she summed up the situation thus. "'Look here! I never did take stock in that bum story of your being a quitter on the battlefield. But now I sure will if you walk out and hand the show over to Dick Stroud. Why, he's worth two of you! Look how he sticks! You'll get me one of these days, just by his sticking, if I'm not careful. And when it comes to a woman like that, why, I'm ashamed to go round with such a guy.' "'and say the next time you ask me to dinner "'you're not to be got up like the bogeyman dressed for his wife's funeral. "'You look like you did the other day in Boston, "'or the first time I saw you, "'or it would be Nick's or little Lydia.' "'Drinkwater's tone was similar and yet different. "'It was different in that while his premises as to sticking "'coincided with little Lydia's, "'his conclusions were not the same. "'Perhaps he was not the same Drinkwater.' More than two years having passed since I had seen him, I found in him more than two years of development. A crude boy, when last we had met, association with a man like Averill, combined with his own instinct for growth, had made him something of a man of the world not the less sympathetic for his honest pug face and his blindness. The fact that he asked me to dine with him at his university club was an indication of progress in itself. He gave me his confidences before I offered mine sketching a career in which stenography figured as no more than the handmaid to a passion for biological research. From many of the details of research he was, of course, precluded by his blindness. But his methodical habits, his memory, and his faculty for induction had more than once put Averill on the track of one thing when looking for another. It was thus that they had discovered the Ovita paraditaia while experimenting for the germ of the Spanish influenza. Incidentally, his salary had been creeping upward in proportion, and he made himself more useful. "'And it has been a wonder,' he declared, his face shining. "'Talk about sticking! The way that girl stuck to me in every kind of tight place. Always thinking of other people and how to pull them out of the holes they got into. In the Middle Ages she'd have been a saint. Now she's just an up-to-date New York girl.' 
By the time he had finished this rhapsody, I was ready to tell him a part of my own life-tale, on which I found him more responsive than any one I had met. As to my mental misfortunes in France, he accepted the narrative without questioning. When I came to what I painted as domestic conditions outlived on both sides, he passed the topic over with a lightness born of tact. You see, it was an altogether older and more serious drink-water with whom I had to deal, and yet one not less enthusiastic. I discovered this when, with much misgiving, I hinted at the task to which I wished to dedicate anything left in my life. "'You've got it, old boy!' he half-shouted, slapping his leg. "'There are three or all big jobs through which we white Americans have got to save our country, and among them the free play of class contribution is almost the first. Say, these fellows that go jazzing about class welfare get my goat. Class corporation is what we want, and it's what classes come into existence to give. You can't suppress classes, not yet a while at any rate, in a country full of inequalities. But what we can do is to get the classes that form themselves spontaneously to take their gifts and pass them on to each other. Each works out something that another doesn't, and so can benefit the bunch all round. Say, Jasper, you'll hit the nail of one of our biggest national weaknesses right on the head as soon as you've learned how to do it. Yes, but the learning how to do it is just where the hitch seems to come in. I've been in New York three weeks, and I'm just where I was when I came. Say, I'll give you a line on that. Do you know how a young fellow in a country town, I don't know anything about small places like New York, becomes a barber? I said I didn't, that I'd never given a thought to the subject. Well, he doesn't learn, and nobody ever teaches him. He just sits round in the barber's shop, brushing hats and hanging up overcoats, and wishing to the Lord he was a barber. And all of a sudden he is one. He's watched the shaves and hair clips, hardly known he's been doing it, but wishing light blazes all the while. And at last it comes to him like song to a young bird. Now you've got to sit round. Sit tight and sit round. Wish and watch and watch and wish. And the divine urge that turns a youngster into a barber, because that's what he's got his heart on, will stir you into the right way. This isn't going to be anything you can learn, as you'd learn to drive a motor or dissect a dead body. It won't be a profession. It'll be a life that'll show you the trick. Don't try to hurry things, Jasper. And don't expect that three weeks, or three months, or three years are going to make this mum old world fork you out its secrets. Just stick. And if you don't do the thing you're aiming at, you'll do another just as useful. Why, the doctor was going to chuck all his experiments on the influenza bug when I persuaded him to keep at it. And so he discovered the thing that scientists have been after since Dockerdorf thought he'd tracked it down as long ago as 1893. All sticking. End of Part 3 Chapter 2